So it's it's great to be talking with you. And um, the timing is sort of great because like you and I were, were talking back and forth and like we had not disagreements, but we're having discussions. And that's one of those things I love about sort of the data fam and social media and stuff. It's like that everyone sort of got different thoughts and feelings and opinions. And it's uh, it's really great, like especially the people that want to talk to you about it. You know, it's like sometimes people might like, I don't know, I don't think that's the right thing. And like they won't say anything to you or an employee that you could see it, but like they might talk to other people. And look, I'm guilty of doing that, too. But it's like I love whenever someone like might disagree with me on something and wants to talk about it because like I feel like I learned something and like I get something out of it then. And, you know, maybe the other person sees where I'm coming from and stuff. And that's not even why I'm having you on. And I'm not bringing it up to like go in that direction or be controversial, but like, I just appreciated that, you know? Well, I, you know, I think I could have reached out to you individually as well, but you know, it was, it was multiple people and it's, it's so easy to do, right? Your point was right. It was well taken about the, the category and everything of that award. I got everybody's point, you know, just, I don't know. I'm a pretty empathetic person, I think. And I, for whatever reason in that moment, put myself in that person's shoes and, I know like, you know, when I was just starting, I, I think, and I didn't know this person, right? I didn't know who, who wanted, I didn't know the, the person at all, but if it was me, I probably would have, you know, had an issue with some of the comments that were floating around there. So I don't know. I was busy. I just threw something out there, threw my, threw my heart out there on Twitter, which is often not a great idea, but I could have reached out to you individually. I think would have been the, uh, the smart move, especially since we're friends, but I mean, I, I'm not I'm not hurt in any way. And for context, what we're talking about is uh, the DVS recently sort of resurrected the Information is Beautiful Awards and hosted it this past year. And there was a little bit of controversy um, surrounding the winner of the what would the business analytics category. So the choice that they made was a very artful piece uh, that's sort of like a sort of growing sunflower with uh, like a radial scatter plot going on. And uh, Will Perkins and uh, me and a handful of other people were kind of like, I mean, it's not really business analytics, you know, it's and it's sort of just raising the question of not this is not fine work, but like the categorical choice. And I think the best comparison I had for it was um, what was it? Uh, Get out won the Golden Globe for best comedy musical. <laughs> right. And it's like no one's saying that Get Out wasn't good. No one's saying Jordan Peele and the cast involved weren't amazing. It's just like when people see something and the categorical selection of it just feels so misaligned, your impulse is like, I think you're hurting your actual legitimacy by awarding something in the wrong category. It makes me ask, do you know what those words mean? And right. um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's just such a dull. And I've, I've been a, a part of at least two controversies in the past two weeks. <laughs> um, so we, we can definitely talk about both of those if we want to or anything else. But it, it was definitely like, um, sometimes my impulse is like, Hey, this is a weird choice and I'll bring something up. And I'm not thinking about, you know, in this case, the winner was actually almost a third party in my thought, because I think both with Will's comments and my comments, at least when we initially say something, it's like, Hey, look, this has nothing to do with the person. I don't want to insult them, but it's also kind of impossible not to right? like, if you're mm -hmm. saying like, I don't know, you really shouldn't have won this for this category. Um, that there, I don't think there's any way to say that in a way that doesn't come off as I don't think you're good, even though you're saying like this is a fine piece of data art and it is a fine piece of data art. It's it's really cool. Like I actually like it a lot, but it's like yeah. in the category of business analytics, I was just so like confused and befuddled. Like I'm like, I don't know what is happening right now. 
I hear you. I totally agree with that. Uh, and, you know, I talked to Mr. Perkins as well, and I, I get his his points as well. And he was very clear online, as, as you were, that it was about the category and that decision. Um, I think it's hard because whenever that conversation came up, it was often driven by forward or forwarding. This is an email, right? But retweeting the visualization, right? So it's just so hard to disconnect the two. Right. And it's like, how do you how do you discuss it without showing it? Right. And then by right. showing it, you're almost impugning it. And it's one of those things where like, especially for me where, and I hate to bring this to the idea of brand, but so much of what I've tried to do with my social media and stuff is be like positive and encouraging and be fun and light. And I realize I've got kind of a platform. So sometimes when I see something and like, I recognize this is kind of weird, like, let's talk about it. Um, I might, um, my voice is louder than I realize, or alternatively, like, uh, my tone can be, you know, maybe seem harsher than I'm meaning for it to be. And it's just one of those things where it's like, I sort of appreciate the uh, reality check on stuff sometimes because, you know, it is easy to not, uh, realize, um, how you're coming off. No, I, I get it. And I appreciate that. And, you know, when I saw that you had written me, I kind of went, uh Oh, <laughs> I thought maybe you didn't take it so well. So now I appreciate your openness. But, you know, back to what you said a second ago, I, I don't want to let this go. How great would Nope have been if it was a musical? Oh, yeah, I'd love that. I mean, look, like, let's just make it for Broadway. Like, it, it can right? be adapted. Like, I mean, you'll have some sort of, like, flying prop that swings overhead and stuff. Like, there's no, re no, there's no reason you could not do that. That would be fantastic. I'm down. I'd go. Like, I'm pre-ordering tickets now. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just saw Nope the other week, so it's it's funny we're talking about Jordan Peele and stuff, and uh, it's one of those things where I'm I don't know I I have that personality where I'm sort of resistant when everyone's like this is the greatest thing ever I'm like it's probably not the greatest thing ever and then I saw Nope I'm like it's really good I really enjoyed it and it's like I, oftentimes when stuff gets really hyped it's easy for me to sort of want to just push back for the sake of pushing back like that's just my I don't know maybe my personality on some level where I'm like it can't be that good and now I'm the person that always talks about Top Gun Maverick which I realize has like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and everything so I'm probably doing that to a degree when I'm like Top Gun Maverick's really great and other people like it's a remake of like a mediocre 1986 Tom Cruise vehicle like there's no way it could actually be a good movie which I didn't expect it to be when I saw it you know I am in such a minority here I love movies um, I loved the original Top Gun. Maybe it's a nostalgia thing. I was in like, I don't know, elementary school, middle school, I forget, but it was huge at the time. And I saw this with my kids and all three of us left the theater kind of like, mm, not that, not that into it. I and don't that's know what okay. it was. And yeah. It just, it just wasn't hitting with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I 100% get that. There's so many things that people, people love uh, Star Wars Rogue One. People adore that movie. They're like, it's so great. I'm like, I thought this movie was an absolute train wreck, like unwatch unwatchably bad to me in the sense that like, I'm looking at the seams of the movie. I'm like, how many planets have we jumped to in the past five minutes here? Like, I have no idea who any of these characters are like. And and the 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 reason people can be like, look, it's a war movie. You're, it's like, they're all expendable. It's like, yeah, but have you seen a war movie? Like they actually develop the characters and then they kill them instead of like, right. look, he died. Like, don't you care who Bodhi is? I'm like, I don't know who Bodhi is. I don't know why I should care that he's dead. Some of those things were what appealed to me. I actually love Rogue One. It's I, I know we're getting off to such a bad start. It's no, one of my favorite great. Star Wars movies. Um, I don't. I, I liked 
that it, towards the end, you know, no spoilers or whatever, but once you realize what's going on and what the end is going to be, I love that anything could happen to any of the characters. That's You know, true. and that's so rare in movies. That's, that's true. And that's one of the reasons I think um, the limited series has become so appealing to people. It both sort of feeds into that uh, serialized storytelling format that people have enjoyed for so long, whether it be television or comic books or whatever, you know, it's like where, you know, there's more coming and it's coming fast. Um, it's what people like about Marvel movies, except you have to wait, you know, X number of months or years for the next the next hit of what you really want. Uh, but with the TV shows, they they move quickly. They can deliver a lot of story, but they can also take their time with the story and they can kill characters off um, uh, more liberally than you can in movies. Yeah, Marvel and Star Wars have kind of been falling into the same boat for me of just overkill. Like, I loved it as a kid. I was thrilled when they came back and they saw how much money they could make. And it's just been relentless. Like, I just can't take another Marvel movie. It's going to be a while before I see another one. And Star Wars, I didn't watch Andor for a long time. And then I kept seeing people whose opinions I really, you know, trust like christina you know who just swear by the show said okay i've got to try it so i'm like two episodes in i'm liking it no I not uh, too bad I just watched it the other week. So uh, my my coworker and and friend Brittany, who you know, yeah um, was speaks so highly of Andor. Now she also likes Rogue One. So I'm like, hmm, am I not going to like this? Because it's a character from Rogue One, who I sort of barely count as a character because he was in Rogue One. Um, it's a show I shouldn't care about because it's that character. It feels like a throwaway. I sort of felt betrayed with the second season of Mandalorian where it felt like the entire point of that season was just to set up new shows rather than sort of continue the same quality of storytelling as the first season. I uh, I thought Book of Boba Fett was a joke up until it became the Mandalorian again. Um, it's like, hey, here's a show how the Mandalorian, I mean, how Boba Fett becomes a mid-level county bureaucrat on a backwater desert planet. I'm like that sounds Right. awful. Um, so I, I, I was, I came into this thing like entirely skeptical. And the thing I appreciate about Andor is one of the things I think about Star Wars is that the less Jedi there are running around, the better it usually is. Like Mm-hmm. a uh, Jedi should be a special occasion. It should be like a, uh, a deus ex machina. A Jedi shows up and it's like an earth shattering event. Like it's such a big deal that they're there and they're, they're so powerful and weird. And it, it's sort of, they're space wizards, you know, they're running around with, um, it's a strange phenomenon. So it, it's really cool that, with a long burn show like Andor, and it's a long season, you get to see like how the rest of the galaxy lives. Like it's not always about, you know, the um, the rebellion versus the empire. Like there's all these other people that are in the middle, people just trying to live their lives, people dealing with this um, bizarre and messed up form of governance. You know, what it's, what's it like to be a bureaucrat? Like all these different things that they're able to explore in the show that, you know, there's no time for in a two, three hour movie. Like, You know, you just got to get in there and destroy the galactic super weapon. Right. And that's some of the stuff that I liked the most about The Mandalorian was those moments. And it, it might have been season two, but it was kind of the highlight for me was where they were in different places. And just you could see the impact of of this war and these people on people just trying to live a simple life. So let me ask you, uh, this is diverging here. So you're, you're Florida man and you're, you're in Boston. Like, was, was there a culture shock leaving Florida for Boston? Oh, a culture shock. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's a very different lifestyle, obviously. Um, you know, Florida is a great place to visit. 
it's a great place to grow up as a kid. It was a challenge as an adult to find, you know, somebody who was going to school for finance and just looking for professional work. It's kind of sparse. It's, um, you know, unless you're in like uh, hospitality, you know, or something like that, it's, it's not that easy to find, you know, great corporate type of job. And, uh, no, coming up to Boston, it, um, it's a little bit different, you know, people were some stereo breaking going on. I think the people are incredibly welcoming, incredibly friendly, willing to help strangers on the street. You know, like I would be someplace new and it was just probably written all over my face. I didn't know what I was doing or where I was. And people would just randomly come up to me and ask me if I needed help. And I had never had that happen in my life. So, you know, personally, I, or for, as far as you know, people go, I think it was a bit of a shock um, in a good way. And, um, you know, just I think the winters were the biggest shock. I had never lived through snow before moving up there. And I think, you know, one year we had like 110 inches of snow, which was just obscene, where it, it was, I think, we were in a meeting one time at work, and this was like the last week of January, and it had not snowed. And someone in the meeting said, I don't think it's going to snow this year. The next four weeks, it snowed like 20 plus inches every weekend and only on the weekends. Right. So couldn't miss any work because of it. But no, it's, uh, you know, I love the seasons. It's uh, it's one of those things where it's like you just can't wait for the weather to cool down and it cools down and you enjoy it. And then it gets cold. And after a while, you're over it. But then it's you know, it's the cycle turns and it's back to spring. And then all of a sudden it's too hot. But. You know, there's always something to complain about. I've only been to Boston a handful of times, but the last time I was there, um, previously when I worked at St. Jude, um, I was part of a, uh, we, we sort of did a nonprofit meeting once a year with other nonprofits. So we used a similar analytics company between all of us. And I normally just went to the general one, but this year I got to go to the uh, sustainer giving one because I was the primary reporting person on that. And someone else was pregnant and unable to go. So my colleague Lene and I, we uh, flew up during the snowpocalypse. So it was like, <laughs> um, we're in downtown Boston and it's, it was near one of the uh, converted Sears buildings. So we actually have one in Memphis also, but they're those huge, like monolithic concrete steel Sears buildings that are all over the country. And, um, there are these companies that specialize in like redoing them, which is kind of cool, but that's off topic. And I just remember like, there's a snow pile, like right behind the office that we're meeting in. That's like 40 feet tall. And we like, we went out to take selfies with it. Cause we're like, look, snow, um, <laughs> because snow is just such an uncommon phenomenon in Memphis. Yeah. And, uh, they'll pile those things up a mile high. And then I guess it's just ice on top of ice. They don't melt till like April, May. It's there forever long after the snow. You better hope they put it in a good spot because like that thing, once it hardens, it's like it's like steel, you know, and oh, it's yeah. gonna it's not going anywhere for a while. Oh no. Usually right in the middle of the parking lot. Yeah, man. So um tangentially cutting uh, uh ice being as hard as steel, I've discovered the strangest, trashiest, uh most fascinating show that just dropped on Netflix, but it's from twenty eighteen. Nice. And it's called Knife or Death. <laughs> um and it's, it's not a cooking show is it it's not it's hosted okay. by former wrestler bill goldberg and it is a knife competition show where people show up with their various knives and it's almost it's it, there's a, there's a few ladies in the mix but it's almost invariably sort of i mean uh, basement dwelling dudes um that uh, also show up in some kind of garb tied to their weapon so the very first guy is from new york and his name is like carl 
and he um he comes in full samurai garb and talks about how like samurai has, has like influenced his entire lifestyle and he's got this katana that he sourced out of china because you cannot uh get katanas from japan directly they're considered like a national treasure so they won't ship them out of the country but he found a japanese sword maker in china who crafted this specifically to his body and then like halfway through the competition his like katana blade just like bends at an absurd angle and you just see this guy's like soul dying because so much of him is wrapped up in this like pseudo samurai identity and this particular sword and he believed it could cut through anything but like a block of ice just like bent his katana in half and it's like that's so much of what the show is like there are all these people that have like, oh, look, like I, I'm wearing a kilt and I'm, you know, some people like I'm a Viking. And it, it's it's this almost sort of like LARPing in real life, but with knives and swords. And then they're unable to cut through a fish with it. And it's it's fantastic. So it's a competition of people bringing their own knives. It's not like a fight, is it? No, but that that would only make it better. It's, it's like know. an obstacle course. Uh, they're supposed to navigate through it and it's based on speed. So uh, the first section, you have to cut through these ropes. The next section, you have to do this thing. And they have different things of varying like sort of tensile strengths and um, that they're having a hack at. So it's really not only testing their endurance, um, but also the quality of what they brought. So it might be sharp for the first five things, but how long is that going to hold up? And then there are certain things that automatically eliminate you. Like you have to cut through a whole chicken that's hanging in a single slice. You have to cut through this massive fish in a single slice. And if you don't, like you're, your time is over that round. You're you're out. It's bizarre. The only other show, like the trashiest show I've ever seen, and I found this on Hulu. It's from like 2003, and it's a spinoff of Rock of Love, which was where Bret Hart was like was like a dating show for him. They took one of the female contestants of that, and it's called Daisy of Love, and it's on Hulu. It's the single trashiest show I've ever seen. Like watch the first four minutes of it. Like you'll see the different contestants and you're like, this has to be a joke. Like these aren't real people. Like are they like actors? Like what's going on here? Like they found the most extreme personalities and then they get them all wasted and then they're all like fighting and it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And it's like, you only feel terrible for everyone. You feel terrible for the contestants. You feel terrible for Daisy and Ricky Rackman is there who used to like host headbangers ball and stuff. Oh, wow. And it's like, he's trying to give her advice and you can just see him like dying inside. He's like, how am I on this show? Like I was on top of the world in like 1991. Like what happened to my life? And it's like, you can, you can see this like look on his face throughout. And that's really where like the real pleasure of Daisy of love is like Ricky Rackman. Like it's a, it's a paycheck. Like no one else is hiring me. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I guess I got to do this. That poor guy. He doesn't have like Kurt Loader on as a guest or anything, does he? No, but it's like one of the contestants was like three Swedish dudes and they all had like um, they were all very thin and had like blonde 80s hair metal hair. And it's like the one contestant was three guys and it's just it's it's an absolute train wreck. That's it's the peak of terrible VH1 television. A trashiest show you've ever seen. That's a bold statement. It is. And I don't watch a lot of trashy shows, so I'm sure there's much worse things. And I'm sure people will have strong opinions on this. But Daisy of Love is the trashiest show I've ever seen. I can't promise I'll check it out. I will see the knife show. You have some kind of weird obsession with knives. I'm fascinated with uh, the TSA uh, Twitter account where they yeah. post, hey, look at these knives people tried to sneak <laughs> through. And it's like they're always like, gas station knives or it's like hey look this thing looks like wolverine's claws and it's 
like first of all the the fact that those things even exist is hilarious to me which there's clearly a market for them and i i thought it was like 12 year old boys but apparently it's not and then the fact that hey someone tried to sneak this knife through tsa security inside a whole raw chicken and i'm like so somebody was like i've got a whole raw chicken <laughs> clearly this is going to be inconspicuous like that's the craziest thing you could be carrying through a tsa checkpoint already and like you don't think they're going to check it for the knife inside and the best part of it is that the 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 person reporting this for the tsa is totally humorless about it like they don't realize how insane and hilarious so many of these things are it's like hey just remember you gotta check your crazy wolverine claws in your check bag like don't put them inside your laptop and i'm like the what is happening did the raw chicken guy also bring like his George Foreman grill? Is he going to like cook it up on the plane or? I mean, that that could be the thing, right? Like maybe yeah. he's just disorganized. Like maybe he was planning on preparing a meal and it's like, where did I put that knife? And it's like, well, right. you put it inside the raw turkey and now you're you're arrested. Of course. Yeah. I mean, some people could take that as a challenge. I don't know how great that is to say, well, look who we busted, what they were holding. Someone else like, oh, yeah, watch me. How's that not a reality show like reality show like TSA? Like, hey, look, someone tried to sneak this through TSA. Of course, I think like there's no way it could ever reflect positively like on no. the TSA or anyone. So I can see why they wouldn't do it. But there was that show Parking Wars, which was kind of crazy, where it's like parking enforcement in a few major cities like Philadelphia and Boston and stuff. Mm. And it's like they have like the people that put the boots on the cars who are like some of the most hated people in all society. The people oh, yeah. that work at the office where you have to go pay your ticket and then like these various other things. And it's just like, how did someone decide this should be a show? Like, hey, you know who people hate these people? Let's watch them do this to other people. And I guess they realize like there's a certain amount of schadenfreude there. Like, oh, man, that dude has like 12 tickets and he didn't pay them. Yeah, no wonder he has a boot in his car. But I don't know. Yeah. Anything to make you feel better about yourself. At least I wasn't that guy. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that's the the gist of like reality television and I guess social media in general. It's either uh, sort of jockeying for prestige by sort of posing to a degree to say, hey, look how amazing my life is. It's so much better than it looks. Or alternatively, like piling on someone who, you know, said or did something stupid. Oh, yeah, it's all good. I think that's that's the gist of one of the things that people perceive social media as really toxic. It's because uh, with the sort of virtual signaling and stuff, it's it we all feel more moral for condemning someone for something stupid or wrong rather than actually doing something more moral ourselves. Like you could just become a more virtuous person and like make a better life for yourself and have better values and be better to your family and community and stuff. Or I can jump on that guy that shot that lion. Like I think that would make me better. And it's it's like just because, you know, you're not shooting a lion doesn't mean like all of a sudden you like leveled up in terms of like goodness. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's just an opportunity for likes and to get some cheap laughs. And that's often not good. Yeah. So have you um, this is off topic. Have you followed the Twitter files at all? What is this? So um, Twitter has been uh, essentially providing documents and firsthand emails and internal communications to reporters. Hmm. So Matt Taibbi did the first round of the Twitter files on Friday night, live tweeting it to Twitter. And last night, Barry Weiss did the second round of Twitter files. The first round basically concentrated on um, sort of controversy surrounding why was the uh, sort of Hunter Biden laptop thing pulled down by the New York uh, that the New York Post had posted. 
And the second round was about sort of Twitter's behind the scenes metrics for throttling or obscuring different people. So well, like um, some people might be omitted from appearing on the front page, even though their post went viral. Other people might have the visibility of their stuff limited and basically showing the behind the scenes settings that allow for those things to happen. And now they're actually going to provide uh, access to users to see if they're currently under effect of any of those conditions and how to appeal if you actually are, because who knows why you might be or if you are, you might not even know. But, you know, providing people the opportunity to understand, hey, you did such and such. This is why you're currently being limited. Here's how to communicate and, you know, either, I don't know, come into some condition of, you know, restoration or whatever. But either way, I think the visibility is good and, and the transparency. I mean, who knows uh, if it's everything, right? Like, we don't know that Twitter would necessarily provide all files, given that some of them, you know, obviously make the service look very bad. Right. But I think it could be positive, you know, potentially be a positive thing for society. I would love for other services to, you know, provide the similar information like, hey, are you, uh, you know, blocking me? Or are you doing this? I mean, not like me personally, but it would be it'd be interesting to know so that we're all sort of aware of the conditions under which we're participating. Twitter's such a wild place these days. I mean, I'm not surprised I didn't see that ever since Musk took over. I just, my timeline went crazy. I have muted so many words and terms and names. It's cleaned up my timeline nicely. It's a much happier place, but I think it's also keeping me out of the loop on some of these crazy things. I've I've done that for years. So one of the, one of the things that sort of part of my how to make Twitter an enjoyable experience is whenever there's stuff that's sort of controversial or hot topics, like that's not really why I'm there. Like I might have interest in it or reading about it in some degree at some point, but like that's not what my social media is for and that's not why I'm doing it or what I want to participate in. So right. like election, you know, fraud, you know, whatever words um, are people are going to be arguing about, like I just I just block those words so I don't have to sort of be party to that. I mean, and it's no different from like if there's a TV show I don't want to watch, I just don't watch it. So it's like I treat it very similarly. Like if there's things I know I don't want to participate. I mean, that's that's why I'm there. I'm there to participate. I want to talk to people. I want to you know have back and forth. It's like sometimes I just throw something out there. You know, I'm like, hey, this movie's really great, and you know, see if anyone else wants to talk about it or something, or comment on someone else's thing. That's really really interesting. Or how did you do such and such? But. I mean, the whole reason I'm there is because I want to communicate, um, which is a lot of the reason I follow the people that I follow, because I would like to talk to them rather than yeah. just sort of have a feed where I'm just, you know, having, you know, content wash over me. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm there for the the personal, the personal things that the people tell, you know, they're the individual things, not so much why I met them in the first place. Right. That's we're slowly moving toward the uh, the Twitter migration conversation. But that's one reason I'm kind of resisting leaving Twitter is a lot of spaces, you know, no names, but if it's narrowly focused on something, that's just not why I'm there. You know, I, I appreciate seeing data viz conversations. I'll participate them for, in, you know, from time to time, but it, the people I communicate with usually are data viz people, but it's not about, data viz honestly you know i like you and you know christine a bunch of other people it's about tv or movies or music or whatever and i i feel like those conversations will get lost in other spaces i agree so um to that end uh i've spent the last week on uh the dvs slack so 
um, there was sort of an initiative, uh, you know, to try to say, hey, like, what if we could move the community over there? And I voiced my concern early saying, like, I don't plan on leaving Twitter and I don't plan on migrating to a single space. But uh, for the sake of sort of supporting getting people on more platforms for this next week, I will not talk about data stuff on Twitter, which is clearly becoming evident how much I talk about other things on Twitter because I've talked a lot about movies still. Um, so I've been doing my data talks over there. And uh, honestly, it's taken till about uh, today's Thursday. Uh, uh, midway through Wednesday, we finally started having some good conversations. So there's been some really good talk about Iron Viz happening over there right now. Um, and that's been really great. Uh, lots of people are jumping in. People I haven't seen in a while. Josh Smith is over there talking about his experiences with Iron Viz. Oh, wow. uh, Will Sutton has jumped in. Andy Cotgreave is talking. Um, so it's a really great conversation that is more difficult to have on Twitter. So this mm -hmm. is a good venue for that conversation. But all in all, it's not a space where I sort of um, my style of communication works as well. Um, I'm sort of off topic a lot. I tie, you know, pop culture topics into data viz and stuff. And the DVS feels a lot more academic. And this is a perception of whether or not it's a reality. And because I am making a habit of sort of doing some uncomfortable truth talking on the podcast lately. There is a very strong perception across the Tableau community that the data that the DVS does not like us. Not only do they not like us, maybe there's some disdain there or something. I don't know, but um, not like it, who? Me and you? No, like just the Tableau community in general, or Tableau oh. as a tool. Um, it it seems that there's some bias there, at least from uh, the various conversations I have with people. So I've had a lot of people messaging me over the past couple of weeks as this initiative was going into effect, as well as with the Information is Beautiful Awards. And the general feeling is, yeah, they don't really like us. And I mean, the Slack has been good for communications on the topic I'm talking about of Iron Viz, but for the most part, it's very empty over there. So they have about 17,000 users, but in reality, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have between 200 or 300 that are active. And activity isn't just measured by public uh, sort of communication it's also measured by private so a lot of what's going on is by direct message so it's very very quiet over there um we are starting to have some good conversations but not on the same kind of level that you have on a sort of public open platform like twitter and also there's no way for new people to discover it or join in that's interesting i didn't know about the anti-tableau sentiment i mean i it makes sense as i've looked through some of the chats recently seeing other people talking about it and it does seem like it's trying to be tool agnostic, which is, I think, a good thing. It maybe lowers my level of connection with the people, at least initially, right, with the people that we're chatting with. But maybe that's an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's we, we could be wrong, right? Like, but this is something that lots of people have said from various perspectives. It could be sour grapes that Tableau projects don't win as much attention or whatever from uh, from the DVS. Um but yeah, it's 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 a perception. So I know it doesn't hurt to say something. And uh, in a way, um, that sort of goes back to the other controversy I was in the other week, which was the Makeover Monday, um, where I had been talking with a sort of uh, school shooting nonprofit where they collect the data and stuff. And um, I was doing a project for him just on spec. Like I said, hey, my mentee was interested in this data, so I'll take a look and make something for you. And he said, that's really great because we don't have any money to like hire anyone to do this kind of stuff. So we're happy to get anything. And I was like, well, what if I could connect you with like a community project that would get lots of people doing it? And he was really enthusiastic. And I 
I talked to Andy and Andy was down because Andy loves that kind of stuff. And then it's like we sort of got we got dragged a bit uh, on uh, Twitter uh, yeah. for sort of the ethics of making it available. And then also some of the stuff that people had made. So some people had made like blood splatters or stuff running down the page, which I find to be extraordinarily grotesque. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those things where I'm trying to weigh the positive and the negative. And I feel guilty that that stuff got made, even though I obviously didn't tell them to do that. You know, we're all adults. At the same time, it's it's a topic where if we don't sort of make it available and encourage people to look at it, it's like no one's going to learn anything. And, you know, we can sort of talk about it in opaque terms saying there's more of this. It's bad. But it's like if we don't actually look at it and examine it, where is it happening? When's it happening? You know, mm -hmm. that's all important. I have a similar feeling. So. I mean, this happens every year or two, right? Um, when I first started with Tableau in 2019, there was a Makeover Monday, and it was, I forget what the topic was. It was some heavy material. And I was, other than Excel, if you want to call that data visualization, I was pretty new to the, da the data visualization world. And um, it was one of the first Makeover Mondays that I did. And, you know, I, I have a... I have a sense of humor that's not always super appropriate, right? I'm a little bit of the Chandler of the group here. And I I probably, no, not probably, I didn't treat it with the respect that the topic deserved. And I learned my lesson, right? Um, it's It's tough because you need to learn those lessons somewhere. Maybe it's not best to do it in front of the whole world on Twitter. I don't know what the best place is, but you need to learn it somewhere. And, um, so I think every time this comes around, somebody is, you know, not handling it with the the appropriate tact and we we hear about it and then we question whether we should or we shouldn't and time goes by and we do it again. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, 100%. And I think like it's such a it's such a delicate balance, right? Like because you you don't want to just make topics taboo. You don't want to say, hey, look, no one can touch this. Like, if you touch this, I'm going to just jump all over you. Um, because that then, like, what? Then we don't learn anything. We don't progress as a society. We don't get smarter. We don't, we're not able to talk about things in an informed way. It's just strictly like an emotional response, which is why in mine, like, I spent like 15 hours on sort of eight really, really simple graphs because so much of my time was dedicated to my verbiage and making sure I was very clear and also saying up front, like, Hey, look, nobody likes this. We're like, we're all very uncomfortable with it. Um, we're, we're look, we hate the thing and we're uncomfortable talking about it. And also I'm not being prescriptive here. I'm not saying like, I'm not leading you to a conclusion. I'm trying to point out where this stuff happens and how that's changing. Um, so like just being very explicit and clear about what, uh, my intent is, um, and I know not everyone's going to do that. And look, that's not usually my thing, but I worked at St. Jude for like 13 years and it's a children's pediatric cancer nonprofit. So like right across the street in the hospital, there were kids with terminal illnesses who they and their families are going through the worst thing anyone could ever imagine. I mean, like my niece is actually a patient there. Um, so like I have the sensitivity to this kind of thing and I was terrified to deal with it and it took an emotional toll on me just to work on the project. Like I felt drained at the end of it. And I'm like, I, I can't do that again right away. Like that's not my thing. So yeah, it, it really took like an emotional toll to have to work on something so horrible. I, I remember one of the things I had to do back when I worked at, at St. Jude, because 
I didn't work in like the hospital. We're two sort of distinct organizations. We had the hospital and then ALSAC, um, which was American uh, Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities, which was Danny Thomas founded that five years before the hospital to fund and promote the hospital because, you know, you have to pay for it before you make it. So um, one of the things I had to do once was a, a patient family had gotten like a letter, just one of our source standard fundraising letters. And they had written back like, we're so sorry. We'd love to give a gift right now, but you know, it's like been so financially difficult after the, you know, after the loss of so-and-so, like they had lost their, their child was a patient that did not survive. And they were saying, we'd love to give a gift, but we can't right now. And, um, there was a freak out, like our, our chief information officer, like this can never happen again. Like we, we can never accidentally, um, mail a patient family. So I had to be response. I was, um, leading one of a couple projects, but I had to scrub all patient families who had lost a child from our donor roles mm. and it sort of make sure all the processes people use to pull various stuff would make sure not to pull them. And that was terrible because it wasn't yeah. just like I was having to look up obituaries and stuff to confirm. And it was, it was dark. Like it was a severely unpleasant project. That sounds really difficult. And the whole thing's difficult, the the Makeover Monday challenge and what you're talking about. But like I said, I, I, I'm an empathetic person. I know it sounded like maybe the opposite when I was saying we have to learn somewhere, right? But like I'm a father of two. Um, I've worked with the Ronald McDonald House in the past. And, and like if anything had ever happened to my kids and these negative feelings were dragged back up in some way, I, I would just be heartbroken. So I 100% get you know, the issue with trying to be careful with these topics. It's, it's a difficult thing. And I think one of the difficult things about difficult topics, and this is getting heavy, but I think it's worth having. And I, and I don't think anyone's going to say you're not empathetic. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. But like Max Shatner was one of the people um, that sort of put me onto this data set because he had reached out to me once before he, um, I believe his son was one of the Parkland victims. Um, so Max is, sort of dedicated his life to sort of curbing uh, school violence. Um, you know, we think about school violence as school shooting specifically, but there's all sorts of other violence that, you know, occurs day to day that we don't even think about. Um, so he's really dedicated himself to that. And uh, I reached out to him to ask, hey, where can I get some data on this? My mentee is interested in sort of doing, and that's how he put me onto this. Um, because he had also had some data projects done for him uh, by Lindsay Betzendahl, who um, did some stuff for him. And it's one of those things where there's clearly a need for it and a demand for it and a reason to do it. And um, I don't know, it's just a touchy topic. And I also don't think, um, you know, I saw some of the sort of data ethics rules being floated out there about how these sort of things should be handled. And I don't know if those rules should be hard and fast. So some of them like not showing any data up front and containing a spoiler warning. I think sometimes people need to be confronted with data, especially on hard topics that we don't want to talk about. And um, that's controversial, right? Like you don't yeah. want to be, um, I don't know, you don't want to be like in your face, like not a shock jock kind of thing. But like, I'm never going to want to voluntarily look at something about children dying. Like that's awful. It's terrible. But it's like, if I see something, especially if I see something that immediately draws my attention like did you know something 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 i'll be like what and then i'm going to be sucked in and i'm going to want to learn more and i'm going to want to know about it and like that's how my mind works i know that's how not how everyone's mind works 
But I know sometimes you have to grab someone's attention, not by saying like a bomb basket thing. Like there's these, um, like these mad magazine covers or something from back in the day where like, if you don't buy this issue, we'll, we'll kill this dog. You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's right. not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like, like shocking or offending for the sake of getting eyes. I mean, look, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the worst aspects of Twitter that we see, which fortunately is not predominant in the data fam or uh, sort of data folks in general, but right. like the, what's an eye grabbing thing that you can say like, Hey, look, we know school shootings are on the rise. Let's talk about where they're happening. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I can see where that's going. I would like to learn more. I saw, saw, I heard on a podcast a while ago, I forget which one it was, but they were talking about those warnings where you're sort of warned before something's going to happen on a show. And it was a scientific study. So it's not just like someone's opinion, but the thought with a lot of people was those warnings actually are more stressful because you then spend the entire episode thinking about the topic and waiting for this horrible thing to happen. And then apparently it, it resonates more. It sits with you longer afterwards. So <laughs> again, who knows what's right and who knows what's wrong, but it feels like we can't do, do it right no matter what we do. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think, I think professional maturity and sort of personal growth at a certain level sort of necessitates, um, toughening of your hide a bit and understanding that sometimes you're going to get heat and it's not always comfortable. It's not fun to sort of get dragged or whatever. And it's not the most fun to have people sort of talking about you behind your back, but sometimes you do stuff and sometimes you make mistakes. Like maybe the better choice here. And this is what one of the first people that talked to me about it um, said, and they had reached out to me like at the very beginning of the week before stuff even started coming out. And it wasn't so much of like an indictment, like, Hey, this is a terror. Like, I can't believe you did this. It was more of a, you know, it's viz for social good probably would have been a better arena because the people that are participating are sort of more keened into the sensitivity of issues and stuff. And I was like, you know what? Great point. Like, I didn't even think about it. Like, I didn't yeah. think about it at the time. I was like, hey, like Andy and I hung out, you know, the, uh, like a few months ago when I was in town for New York, I got to know him a little bit and I knew um, he would be interested. And I was like, hey, look, this is a, a good opportunity to get in a lot of people's hands. And, you know, maybe in retrospect, that should be what I would have done. But I don't know. Yeah, pivoting that uh, that looked like a good time. I saw those pictures from the the New York Salesforce office. Looked like a pretty nice venue. It, it was jealous. it was a really cool venue. And let me tell you, I needed that week, John. So I um I didn't get to go to Tableau conference last year. You know, we've sort of had some family health issues and stuff, um, yeah. which we're doing much better now. So like, I'm hoping uh, to be at uh, at TC uh, in the spring assuming they announce it sometime. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, it's like, I had not seen any of like the data fam in person in like almost three years. Um, so it was a, a work opportunity. That's the reason I got to go. Um, so we were working with the data school and I'm actually working with a data schooler right now. She's on her first rotation, uh, from the first class of the New York data school, which, um, Laura Peterson and I, uh, at least from the U S team were there at the New York one. We actually had JLL folks at every data school, um, around the world that week. And we were doing some projects with them. As you know, like any big organization, we have some older dashboards that could use some gussying up. And uh, Pooja, who I'm working with right now, um, sort of ran the project at the New York office because each week at the data school, they have someone who's a project leader and everyone else sort of is, are the build team. So they'll rotate each week so everyone gets that experience. And it's a really great experience working with them. I sort of, um, I got a lot of energy back that you sort of miss when you don't work in the office, you know, just 
collaborating with people and working live in person, as well as like being in New York, like New York's got some really great energy to it. I wouldn't want to live there, but I had a wonderful time. Um, getting to speak at the New York tug, um, especially since Andy was speaking, like it was like the big, I mean, like it was such a huge honor. Like I know it, it might just be like a mundane thing, but it's like, holy cow, like I'm, I'm here. Like it felt like, like, oh man, I've made it. You know, it's kind of silly to like think of those, those kinds of things like, oh, this is a big deal because it might not be a big deal to like literally anyone else. But for me, it was exciting. And to see friends like Adam Miko and Lindsay Betzendahl and just so many other folks. And I'm like, I, I hate when I start naming names because I either feel like I'm either name dropping or I'm leaving people out. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's, that's never fun. But yeah, it was, it was truly amazing. And it really sort of got me fired up. Yeah, no, I get it 100%. So um, I also didn't get to go to the last TC. I had my my plane tickets and my... I remember you, know, you I was, had COVID, right? I got COVID the day of the plane leaving. Well, who knows exactly when I got it. Like the day before, it was the spring, right? The day before I had mowed the lawn and I I started feeling like something in my throat. I'm like, oh, I just you know got all the, the allergens stirred up. And the next day it was still there. I'm like, no, that doesn't feel right. I took the test and it was positive. So I missed out. I, you know, I was having the the FOMO too with the data fam. And um, you know, I'm the co-lead of the the Boston tug with the great Brian and Jackie Moore. And we hadn't done an in-person event since February of 2019. So it was getting rough. But um, we did actually just have our first tug uh two weeks ago, our first in-person tug at the corporate. The headquarters for Staples in Framingham, Mass. And it was so great to see everybody all, you know, the, the people that you know and the people that you don't know, just trying to meet new people and, you know, just have those conversations. We had Adam who, you know, he's like everywhere, right? Uh, he was one of the speakers. We had Jonathan Drummy come in. I had never met him before. That was such a treat. Um, you know, he stayed and talked to us, you know, like an hour plus after the event was over, just, you know, nobody wanted to go home. So it was, it was really great. Looking forward to more and looking forward, knock on wood, to the next TC. I mean, I'm I'm excited. Um, I was in talks the other day with one of my former co-leads because we used to lead the Memphis Tug. Um, Memphis Tug was one of the casualties of COVID. Our, our last meeting um, was a blowout with uh, Steve Wexler and Anna Ford. And then nice. uh, COVID hit. And uh, like, why would we go virtual with such a small tug when there's so many bigger tugs, right? So um, one of my uh, co-leads uh, has just changed jobs and we're like, hey, maybe we get the band back together. Maybe we try to bring this back. In the meantime, I'd love to go speak at the Nashville Tug sometime. Like, um, I know they they probably would have me, but it's like, it's, you know, like a six hour round trip. So I'm not just going to do it on a, on a whim. Like, it'd be fun to like, um, to sometime they're doing it to do that. But like, I love speaking at Tugs. Like, I've done so many virtual Tugs this past year. I did two in the same day once, which was just really like a scheduling error on my part and not me trying to set a record for most tugs in a single day. Um, but yeah, it's like I'm always sort of preparing new presentations on spec because I like, you know, communicating ideas and I like getting to talk at tugs and I, I like to do that kind of thing. It's just, I don't know, it's another way that I can sort of do something I like and I like talking about data and I like um, talking about journeys and storytelling. No, that's awesome. I mean, I... I don't think I've spoken to at a tug outside of Boston. I think I'm one of those guys that feels like I don't have anything to contribute that 50,000 people haven't already spoken to. And I think the the virtual tugs, we were one of those ones that was doing the virtual tugs regularly. And uh, I, I think that maybe helped, you know, 
emphasize those points that you you just see, you know, where you used to just have your own tug. Now you're seeing there'd be like 10 tugs a week. And I'd go and watch like as many of those videos as I could. And you're just blown away by all the content that's out there. But, you know, it was the, it, there's a core group of people that likes to speak at those. And we were glad to get back to in-person because it kind of got to where we were all jockeying for those same names, right? We didn't want to be the fourth person or the fifth person to, to hear a certain topic when you know other people have already watched it. So um, I don't know. That's a, uh, it'll be curious where the tugs go from here, I think, because they were all regionally or locally based. And then we started to get other things like the analytics tug and other, you know, like specialty tugs. Those I get staying virtual. It'll be curious to see with that as a as an option now that people seem to be sticking with even after uh, others have gone back to in person see where uh, where those groups go yeah and i would encourage you john like even though you feel like there's nothing that you feel like you would say that everyone else hasn't said um someone's going to need to hear it in your voice you know someone's going to need to hear it from your perspective um and you never know who that's going to be like I throw away stuff like visit what you love, which, you know, it's, it's sort of hackneyed, right? Like do what you love, you know, that, that sort of thing. Like there's been so many variations on that. I just yeah. threw that out there. And so many people have sort of like said, oh yeah, like I like that. Like that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, it, that was sort of a revelation to my own personal and uh, private stuff. Like what if I just worked on the stuff I liked the most? Maybe my stuff would be more fun. Maybe I would have be having more fun doing this. Maybe I'd do it more often. Um, and some people sort of glommed onto that, um, not in a negative way. That sounds negative, but you know, it's like, maybe there's something that you're thinking or that, you know, that you think is common or you think, um, yeah, well, everyone knows this. Like, why would anyone need to hear it from me? Like, so don't, don't be shy about that. Like, clearly I do this every two weeks. I've repeated some of the same stories like a dozen times, I'm sure. But every episode is someone's first episode. And sometimes you say something and the right people, right people or person hears it at the right time. That's a good point. I mean, I, that's correct. I know I've spoken at Boston Tug events in the past and I've, you know, mentioned something like that. I almost didn't even mention it because I thought it was something everybody just kind of knew. And then somebody would come up afterwards like, that was incredible. How did you do that? And so, yeah, you're exactly right. I think um, that's sort of another lesson I've um, I've sort of learned. Like, I sort of grew up like being taught to be very humble, but in reality, it was almost like being very low self-esteem. So, um, sort of minimizing and not like thinking anything's that big a deal or whatever. Not that I do think I'm a big deal, but, um, sometimes someone will say something like, oh man, you did that thing. And it's like my favorite thing or like, Hey, I really love your such and such. And my impulse is to like minimize be like, and it's not that big a deal. Like, or no, like, look, your stuff is way better or something like that. Um, but in, I've sort of learned and it's, um, not to minimize, other people's feelings like you know it's like if they feel like that's that's great like say thank you you know like you know ap appreciate their perspective and sort of accept that it was meaningful for them even though it might not be for you and don't take that away from them you know like if you were to go up to like michael kane and tell him like oh man like i love jaws for the revenge like you michael didn't. Uh, yeah it's clearly the best you know um you know it's like he's probably not going to say, yeah, that was a massive piece of crap. I only did that for the money. Like he's going to say, thank you. You know, I appreciate that. You know, it's like, don't take that away from the person. Like if they like Jaws for the revenge, that's, that's great. Like let them love that. Don't take that away from them. Right. And he's like the most prolific actor ever. 
he's like the Stephen King of of actors, I think. So I'm sure there's a few duds in there and a few paycheck only type gigs. But uh, yeah, and like Makeover Monday, right? That's another good thing about that is it's uh, it might one might not be better than the other, but it's different. It's a different take on the same thing. So somebody's going to take something value out of that. I mean, for sure. And one of the things I, I don't participate in Makeover Monday much anymore. And part of that is because I started focusing more on projects that were personal to me and stuff that I wanted to do. And I think as a result, I don't see as much Makeover Monday in my feed. And I think I'm missing out. Like I'm missing out on a lot of new voices. Like I'm missing out on sort of that experience I had when I was sort of, you know, starting and coming up and new. And there's just so much energy and vitality there where people are experimenting and trying new things and, you know, oftentimes failing very visibly and sometimes, you know, uh, evolving and changing and getting way better. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. You know, I haven't done Makeover Monday in years. Nothing against the project, right? I've just been, I think, more focused on on work and business type dashboarding. And so like user enablement and standards, which, you know, not that it goes against Makeover Monday, but I used to do those to to grow my palette or to, you know, experiment with new things instead of trying to narrow down what I do. Um, but yeah, I think I threw this out on Twitter the other day. I, I didn't know if there has been less Tableau or DataViz talk in recent months. It feels like it to me, but I think it's probably the same thing where I'm just not paying attention to the right people. I don't know, like it, 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 there's a, there's a sense, a, like a feeling, and this is a feeling, it's not, doesn't mean it's a reality that the, uh, the sort of the data community and the data fam in particular is contracting. Um, because, you know, we've all, like, you've been around long enough that we see people come and go. You see people that sort of, uh, hit the scene. Sometimes they're like really big and like, everyone's like, wow, I'm so into this thing, you know, like enough that they sort of inspire others and sort of have copycats. I don't mean that in a negative way, you know what I mean? Um, and then they're just like, after a year, they just, you know, sort of move on or flame out or, you know, get bored or whatever. And then there are other people that are sort of evergreen around all the time. Um, there are some people that sort of just fly like, like Kevin Florilage, like Kevin came in the scene and he was like, um, you knew Kevin was like a superstar from the beginning. And, Sure. you know, he, he still continues to do what he does and he's very great at it. And that's, you know, and not everyone has sort of Kevin's sort of level of success, but they're always there and they're always working. And, you know, like, I feel like I'm part of that group, but it's like, I'm, I'm just making stuff regularly. I'm, I'm here. Like I'm still present. And then there are people like just sort of drop off your radar. I think one of the challenges of social media and stuff like Twitter is that it sort of only serves you the people that you're already interacting with the most. So like if I interact with you, I'm going to get more of you. And that's good because I like you or, you know, in the case of sort of the negative aspects of Twitter, like if you don't like something and you go on and yell at someone, congratulations, you're going to get more of that. You're going to be angry all the time. That's what that's Right. what's going to happen. But the downside of that is because we have such a sort of Uh, large, disparate, and passionate community from all over the world and stuff. If I if I interact with you, that means I'm not getting someone else now, and it's because you're only going to get so many things in your feed. Um, so it, it's kind of difficult like that. It's like you don't know what you're missing. Yeah. And there's always going to be supernovas, right, who come on the scene hard and then flame, not flame out, right, but maybe fall to the background. It, it, being Having like a constant presence in that space can be exhausting. I, don't, I do not know how some people do it. It's very impressive. Um, I just don't have the time for it. But, you know, I think another thing is the pandemic just changed our priorities. I'm sold on this fact. 
you know, when I went into the office, I'd, you know, go in and do Tableau and then I'd come home and I'd open my laptop and I'd do more Tableau. But the pandemic and having everybody stuck in the house at the same time and remote work was new to me. You know, I'd work all day on my computer in the basement. I got to be honest, man, five o'clock, the last thing in the world I want to do is open the laptop again or keep it open and keep doing the same thing. You know, it just that environment showed me just how much I'm needed at home, really. And my presence with my children and things like that, it's just so important. It just gave me new perspective on everything. It's so I mean, I don't think I've published anything to Tableau Public in at least a year, maybe. Um, it's nothing against Tableau or the community or anything like that. I think things just sort of shifted a little bit. And I, I feel it with other people as well. So I think if we sense a contraction in some sort, it could just be that, you know, the interest is still there. I think we're just expressing our interests in different ways. I think that's highly possible. And I also think like using new visas as a measure of community engagement isn't the best metric. Um, because there are a lot of people that sort of evolve their involvement or whatever. Some people running tugs, you know, some people are sort of hosting a project. Some people blog, you know, it's like yeah. um, you might just be doing something else rather than just strictly creating new visas. So it's like clearly that's not the only way to sort of be involved or, or measure, you know, engagement or community involvement or passion for that matter. Like, and that's one of the things like as I sort of had been doing public stuff for a few years. I was looking at sort of my peers and like everyone was opening blogs and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't think that's something I want to do. Like I have written a couple blog entries, but like they're months apart at a time. It's clearly not what I want to be doing. But when I have an idea, like I might go write it up, but it's like, I'm not going to, you know, it seemed like for a while, you know, maybe when I was sort of early on, there was almost like a path like, well, you do this for a few years and then you become like a tips blogger and you do this kind of thing. And then if you do tips blogging long enough and you're active on the forums, you might become this thing. And that's, I'm like, I don't know, that's not really a path I'm interested in. So I just sort of did my own thing that made me happy. And um, it led to more of me doing my own thing that made me happy. Um, and then they said, okay, you can be a Tableau visionary. And at first the feeling is like, oh, I better change what I'm doing. But I was like, well, no, you kind of picked me because of doing the thing that I'm doing. So I'm just going to do more of the thing that I'm doing unless you tell me not to. <laughs> I know I don't, and yeah. it's like, if you tell me not to, then I'm just going to do that anyway. And you can take it away if you want to. But like, I'm not going to become like a tips blogger. Like that's, you know, I'm not going to cut YouTube tutorials. I mean, probably I, I could, I have Camtasia, but like, I'm not really interested. No, I, you make a fair point. You got there for a reason, right? I don't think more should be expected of you. If you want to grow yourself and do new things, cool. But I, I could see that the pressure would be real, but that shouldn't be the expectation. I mean, honestly, the the big, the first, the, the initial pressure is like, what am I supposed to be doing? And it's like, it's what you're doing. And then the secondary pressure is, what if I lose this? Mm -hmm. And then the sort of the, you know, there's the emotional uh, like aspect or the uh, sort of fear of failure. Like, oh man, it's going to be embarrassing at work if, I'm the one that, you know, loses this. But in reality, it's like, it doesn't mean I, I don't know how to do the stuff I do and I can't do the stuff that I do. It's just something that's not there anymore. So I don't know. I'd be disappointed. Uh, it might be a little embarrassing, but um, I don't know. I'm still the same person. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah. I mean, I've had similar thoughts, right? I'm uh, an ambassador and it's for the Boston tug. And sometimes it 
creeps in my head like you know have, have i done anything that uh, you know the whoever votes on this thing that they would even realize i'm still on this planet i don't know <laughs> so but i'm i'm the same way where i'd rather have good impact on 10 people than lightly touch a thousand you know virtually touch right yeah. nothing inappropriate um so <laughs> you know that's why i think i like running the you know helping to run the tug is you get that core group of people who are really interested and you know that's that's where you get the juice i think yeah i agree you know it's been uh it's been great having you today like um it's cool to like get to actually see your face and talk to you um, and that's one of the things I like about doing this show, like as much as, uh, you know, this is a podcast out there for others to listen to. It's really an excuse for me to force people into talking on the phone. Uh, so um, it's you get you get a different type of conversation than you would with back and forths. And that's really cool. Um, so that's why I'm all about sort of us expanding to different types of conversations and formats rather than taking them away. And one of my big thoughts is, you know, you're talking about that sort of reach and, and reaching other people is I love when new people come in and it'd be really hard to do that if we all sort of go to sort of a cloistered, closed off uh, community because no one's ever going to discover it. Like I had a hard mm -hmm. enough time even realizing it existed on Twitter where it's in the open. Um, but the other thing is I like people that aren't data people finding our stuff. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's one of my my big passions. Like I love when lay people discover data things. And think, hey, that's cool. Like, I, I don't expect them to jump in and start making stuff. But like, to realize that, hey, data is sort of powerful and neat and can be shown in unique ways that lead to insight and, and discovery. Like, I want more people to see that, not less. No, exactly right. Um, you would have that problem on a more closed off community. It might be more focused and more a stronger conversation in that space, but you're going to lose those other benefits that you just mentioned. I totally agree. So I don't think Twitter's going anywhere. I think we'll figure it out. I think if, if it was going to die, it would have happened already. So let's just hope it doesn't turn into a bigger cesspool than it is. Somehow we've managed to escape that for the most part in the data community. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it's about us leading the way, right? Like if, if we're a community, we're going to be that wherever we are. So let's put our best foot forward and, you know, sort of be encouraging to others, be kind, help promote good stuff help encourage people to be the best versions of themselves. And like, that's the kind of stuff that draws people in. Like, um, you know, I can't control what anyone else does and I, I wouldn't attempt to, I don't know, you know, uh, I can't make anyone else a good person, you know? So it's like just everyone, you know, treat, you know, golden rule. Come on. Yeah. Just Bill and Ted, right. Be excellent to each other. Yeah, man. So before we wrap today, is there anything you want to promote or anything you'd like to shout out? Oh, man. Uh, let's see. Shout out to the Boston Tug, obviously. Um, you know, more in-person events coming. You're welcome to come and speak anytime. It's a love long to. trip, but uh, we'd love to have you. Um, shout out to my new employer, Staples. Fantastic place to work. I couldn't be happier. Um, other than that, just just loving the data fam and my friends. Good to see you guys. Great to see you, you know, face-to-face uh, -face again, sort of. You know, we had like five minutes of in-person conversation at TC19. So it's been a while. It's, it's good to catch up. Hopefully, hopefully TC23 will get more time. Let's hope. <laughs>